welcome to the Kira Phelan podcast. My guest this week is Public Expenditure Minister Pascal Donoghue. He opens up about coping with grief following the death of his mother last year. He also discusses fatherhood and challenges he sets for himself, like learning how to swim for the first time. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you so much for joining the Kira Phelan podcast. Despite being a household name, as a result, obviously, of your job, a lot of the members of the public and a lot of your colleagues would say that they don't know much about you. How would you best describe yourself? Who is the real Pascal Donahue? So, Akira, great to be on the podcast. And uh, I would describe myself as being an increasingly experienced permanent optimist, is how I would describe myself. I uh, as we'll go on to talk about in your podcast, have a lots of experiences behind the scenes that have formed who I am as a public figure. And uh, my defining view of every day, of every challenge, of everything I'm involved in is always that we can make progress, we can do better, uh, uh, we can get our way through things. Uh, but I also have been in public life now for quite a while. And I've been involved in lots of different things. So I'm not naive. Mm. I've got the scars. I've been through ups and downs. But I'm still always positive at the start of every day and still reasonably positive at the end of it as well. Mm. So you mentioned that you, you have had some scars, obviously, going through life, as many people would. How have they shaped you? And is there anything in particular that stands out that you think you learned a lot in life from and has, has shaped you as a person? Well, the defining experience for me, as I'm sure is the case for so many, is uh, my childhood and the family that I grew up within. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was um, incredibly uh, lucky with the start that I got in life. I grew up in Blanchettstown, uh, just off Kinsilla Road, in a hugely uh, supportive and really hardworking family. Uh, and the background that my family gave me was one of a kind of a real focus on Know, working hard and doing your best and being respectful of people as well but was also one that was very appreciative of my own things about myself my own quirks uh, and my own interests that were becoming clear even then so I'm not one of these people here that at the age of 10 or even 20 decided they wanted to be a politician I mm -hmm. didn't have any such ambitions at a young age but I did have other things that really defined me uh, even at a young age I was a uh, a really big reader and I loved books and the pursuit of life through books um, and I also had very bad asthma and uh, because of the asthma in particular I wasn't very sporty um, and I was never a kind of a member of the kind of crowd or a member of a group um, and as a, a young child I guess in many ways I was uh, quite uh, solitary because of the pursuits that I had but amazingly uh, lucky in my family and in my, you know, my brother and how they recognised all of that and gave me a, a big, you know, such a strong start in life. And I'm very lucky to have had that. And those things have went on privately to completely define who I am. When you say that you, you know, had asthma as a child and you, you know, read a lot of books that you mightn't be as involved in groups as young boys are yeah. at that age, um, although a lot of parents would wish that their children would be reading books a lot more yeah. than sometimes out in the pitch. Um, did that separate you from children 
your own age at the time, was it lonely? So to a degree it did, but thankfully it was never lonely. Uh, so how it did is that I just wasn't able to participate in any of the kind of sporty activities mm. uh, that are were a kind of a big part of my school life, the school life that I was in, and then the local community that I grew up in in, in, in Blanchettstown. And uh, because of that, I wasn't part of that kind of kind of com- communal experience that young boys and girls now, you know, it's a big part mm. of the lives of so many of them. But it didn't make me uh, lonely uh, because I had lots of other interests that filled up my life. Uh, that meant I never really had a feeling of uh, loneliness, but I definitely did have a feeling of, of, of difference, of a little bit of separation. Uh, I don't remember uh, the first goal I scored or the first point, point I scored or the first try I scored because I never did any of that. Mm. But I can remember the first time I... I, I heard Bob Dylan. I can remember the first time I saw a Led Zeppelin album. I can remember where I was when I heard the Beatles mm. and I saw the Lonely Pepper, the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Uh, and, uh, and those memories have taken the place uh, and those experiences at the time took the place of lots of other things such as sport. But I, I, I definitely now, as an adult, really have an uh, appreciation of the fact that you know, not everybody wants to play sport as much as I love sport. Mm. Not everybody, uh, not everybody finds uh, fulfilment with being lots of other people all of the time. Um, the person who's a little quieter, the person who's on the edge of things is somebody you always have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Going back to your childhood, what was your household like with your parents and your brother? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that's... Uh, dominated my life over the last, uh, just over nearly a year and a, and a, coming up to a year and a half now because my my mum passed away uh, last April. Uh, and it now means I'm uh, at that point in life where both my parents are no longer with me. Mm. Uh, and uh, uh, as anybody goes through losing a parent and then goes through the experience of when you've lost both and both are no longer with you. It, it's such a landmark moment in your life. Mm. Uh, and on a personal level, that, that has absorbed so much of me now uh, 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 for, as I said, nearly a year and a half now, but when you're listening to this podcast. And because of all of that, it's really changed my awareness of the memories that I have from family life uh, because it's just given them the, uh, the context of them actually now properly being memories and experiences that I won't be able to enjoy again because mum mm. and dad aren't with me. Mm. Uh, um, my dad was a, um, an unbelievably busy and entrepreneurial man. He ran a marquee business uh, uh, and uh, I spent all my summers putting up marquees with my dad and putting down dance floors and erecting tents uh, all over Dublin and uh, across a lot of Ireland. Uh, and then my mum ran the home. And dad had a, a very demanding and very busy small business uh, and had been a very successful show band promoter uh, in his early life. 
a kind of a, a, a version of Donny Cassidy. And um, that meant that family life was always really, really busy by, uh, due to that. Uh, and we went to great local sec- primary and secondary schools, St. Bridget's and Blanchardstown, St. Decton's and Cabra, both of which are still there and flourishing. And uh, family life was all about, uh, you know, getting the homework done, uh, uh, helping dad at the weekends and particularly at the summer, at the summers. And then uh, my mom keeping the show on the road back home. Everybody is aware of how close you are to your mother. A yeah. lot of your colleagues would have been and they would have commented on how profound, like anybody who loses a parent. But, you know, we, we, there's sometimes that you'd hear politicians may have have been walking the corridor of Leinster House and going through grief, but we might never know. But it mm. has been commented about how the loss of your mother, it has had a major profound mm. impact on you. How have you coped with the grief over the last year? So it, my, my mom was a really big part of my day-to-day life uh, because I, um, my mom was with me for uh, a good while after my dad passed away. And she was part of my daily existence. She lived for you? No, she didn't. No, thanks. She was able to have a, had a fully independent life uh, all the way up to the kind of last moments in Blanchardstown in our, in our, in our then family home. Used to ring my mom every single morning on the way uh, after I dropped the kids to school on the way into work. Uh, or when the kids were with me on the way into school, we used to ring mom. Um, I... Uh, uh, Anybody who's been with me when I've been doing an interview, every time I was leaving uh, Montrose or leaving News Talk, I'd always ring my mum after the interview. And it didn't matter how tough the interview was or how bad I was in the interview, mum would always find something good to say about the interview. And um, she was a really big part of my kid's life as well. And, uh, and then I know because I've talked to lots of friends about this and colleagues about this, that when you lose your last parent, there's a particular dimension to that kind of loss. And it, has, it had the impact that it had on me is because I, I really feel the absence of something that was very regular in uh, my daily life. And, uh, and I really miss that and really, really feel the impact of it. And... Even now, I still think, oh, I must ring mum about that. Even now. And uh, as I come up to the budget now, which will be doing, uh, uh, as you know, in, in a few weeks' time, my mum used to uh, come into every budget and never wanted to be in the, in the, never came in for her benefits, always came in for mine, was just there. And when I walked around the doll chamber, uh, with now Michael McGrath to go down and deliver the budget and walk down the steps that lead down to the front bench to do it. One of the last people I used to always see when I was doing it was Mam, who'd be in the visitors' gallery. And, um, you know, I've spent much of this year now dealing with the experience that we'd all get to when you have to leave the family home for good because there's no longer anybody there in us. And God, there are moments that will that do stick with you and do have an effect on you. So I've just had to fit that into what has already been a really busy year. 
when you mentioned there that you know you still although she's been gone sadly a year yeah. when you do an interview you automatically you know, yeah. you think about picking up the phone in those moments what are you feeling oh, obviously it's grief so the first thing i'm feeling is the habit of doing this actually and uh, what has certainly happened and what happens uh, i think to most griefs is that the, the nature of it begins to change and the edges that are on it begin to become less sharp and the good times and good memories begin to have, have a bit more of a, a prominence in how you think about your mm. your parent or anybody you love who you've lost as opposed to always thinking about the absence. But the first trigger in it all, like, is, is habits. You know, I used to ring mom wherever I was I used to ring her whenever I got on a plane, whenever I was in an airport. And that is not there anymore. Mm. I still have my mom's number on my mobile phone. I can't remove it from the favourites list uh, because it just has been such a big feature of life. And certainly what it has done now, Kira, it's just really, really underlined for me uh, it's reminded me of the things that really matter so much in life and even in jobs that are really busy, such as your life or my life when you're in politics or trying to cover and understand what's happening in politics. It's underscored for me the need to also keep an eye on mm. the things that matter so much. On the tough days when, you know, everybody has bad days, days uh, when coping with grief, I don't know if it's a cry or what do you do to try and help yourself get through it? So as I said, the nature of that feeling has definitely changed. There's no doubt about it there that in the aftermath of man passing on there last year, it was definitely the, the, the uh, kind of uh, the acute sense of loss and bereavement that was really kind of did grip me. And like... Mom, as I said, it was just a part of daily life. My colleagues in here in work would have heard me talk about her a lot. Uh, and I was really proud of her. Uh, and now with the passage of a year, it has certainly changed in that it is the memories of when she passed away, but also the really good memories accompany that now. Uh, but I still have that sense of, of, of absence of something that was really there, that is no longer there and will not be there. Mm. And it still catches my breath and gives me a moment to step back and think. Uh, and it does so really unexpectedly uh, uh, as something happens in daily life that just triggers us. Was it difficult, obviously, uh, to clean out your home house and I, I, from my understanding, speaking to you, your home houses, have you got rid of that? Yeah, so it's in Blanchardstown and, you know, I, uh, as we talked earlier on, that's where I grew up. I grew up around the corner from Leo, incredibly. Uh, so Leo and I were literally uh, around the corner from each other. He uh, and, uh, and our paths never crossed until we were both a lot older. I was just going to ask, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, which is it's incredible, actually, uh, given how, uh, how uh, kind of, uh, much time we spent with each other now over the last number of years. Uh, the kind of Blanchettstown I'm describing and the, growing up, and the life I had growing up was the same as 
same as Leo. So uh, uh, there's no doubt about it then, though, that those moments when you realise, you, you know, your your family home is empty and mm-hmm. another family, somebody else should be living in it. Yeah. Like I, I found all of that really, really, really tough. Mm. And I uh, did all of the things of getting, you know, removing mom's belongings and all the choices about the home. I did all of that this year. And every week I would set aside a few hours and I'd go back home and I would do more. And what that did is it brought back again all the kind of different triggers, the the smell, the bit of furniture, the memory. It just kept on being very, very present again. But equally, you get to a point where you realise the time is right and the uh, home that is now a house needs to become a home again. And you get to that point. And there is a, a, a kind of a cycle in getting to that point as well. Was there anything that you came across while clearing out the house that, you know, took you by surprise or something that you really would have never come across before or want to hold on to? Yeah, there was actually. So my 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 mom and dad were not hoarders at all, uh, but they had kept a uh, lots of uh, photographs from early in their life okay. that I certainly cannot remember having seen before. And uh, I, I came across that uh, a booklet uh, when I was clearing out a wardrobe. And it was beautiful because uh, I have it now. And it's memories of my parents before I was even around, before they had me. And that came as a big, nice boost in the difficulty of doing all of that. Because uh, as anybody will know who's gone through this, going through your parents' belongings and their clothes and all of that is it's just really not nice. Sorry for your loss. Thank you. Back to your, your earlier years, you moved to the UK to work in your mid-twenties? So I moved over there in my early 20s and I went over to work for Procter & Gamble, uh, the consumer goods company. Mm. And I went over to work in sales for them. So I, uh, the first time I ever drove a car on my own was driving around a Vauxhall Cavalier around the M25. And I started off my working life responsible for the sale of Pampers nappies and Dad's washing up powder to independent cash and carries in East London and Birmingham. And I spent two years doing that. And literally my job was to persuade very, very successful business people who ran very big cash and carries to buy a truck of Pampers or to buy a half a truck of fairy washing up liquid. And that's where I really cut my teeth in commerce and business and the outside world. And then I ultimately ended up being with P&G for, for nearly a decade. And I had a, an amazing experience with them and a brilliant time living in England. Were you confident in your 20s then? Because that's sales and you'd have to have the gift of the gab. Now, a lot of people say politicians do anyway, but were you confident in your mid-20s when you were doing that job? It built it up in me, in me definitely, because it was really hard-edged mm. work. 
and dealing with uh, really successful traders uh, who tended to be uh, Indian, tended to be of uh, 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 incredibly successful within their own communities, was a formative experience for me. And I can still remember one cash and carry that I used to deal with in Birmingham. And I learned, uh, I learned things about negotiation and commerce in an office in that cash and carry that my God has stuck with me for life. Now you have to share. I oh, know just <laughs> the haggling and the negotiation involved in trying to strike an agreement with somebody. And, um, you know, when you're trying to persuade somebody to buy a truck mm. of pampers off, off you, uh, the uh, wheeling and dealing that goes in around that was a total education for me. And then that was the next phase of my education then, because I did all of that work all the way up then to dealing with Tesco in the UK, all of our retailers here in Ireland. And I did that, as I said, for nearly a decade, for nearly 10 years. And I loved it. And it was a, a, a formative experience for me doing all of that. A lot of people listening would love to hear your pitch to um, for a cash and carry to buy half a truckload of Pampers. And I also had the experience of selling Sunny Delight. All of those, you know, you, you name it, from head and shoulders uh, to Sunny Delight Ariel. I did it, did it all. And uh, uh, it was, um, you know, really developed your ability to be able to sharply communicate, but more than that, to listen to the person who's on the other side of the uh, desk. And um, there's no doubt about it. I wouldn't be able to do what I've done in politics if I hadn't had those experiences in Birmingham and in Essex. And in the UK, that's where you met your wife. Indeed. Uh, so Justine at that point was uh, working for Procter & Gamble as well. Okay. You moved back home and you've two kids, 16 and 18, they're their ages. They're growing up very quickly at the moment. How has fatherhood shaped you? So it is the, uh, uh, I guess if we were talking about the loss of a parent and yeah. parents, and one part of the continuum of life, the next part of it then is becoming a parent mm -hmm. uh, yourself. And uh, uh, I've, I've been so conscious of what it means to be a parent and also to be a politician and a public figure either within your constituency mm -hmm. or in later life then, I guess, across uh, the country as I've served time as a uh, as, a, as a minister and uh, it has really made me focus an awful lot on how I could make sure that my political life fitted into my life as a as a parent and as a private person mm. rather than the other way around. So dropping the kids into school every morning uh, was, was and is an essential part of a kind of daily life for me that I always worked really, really hard to protect. Does the job impact family life in terms of, you know, they're at the age where they probably see a lot on social media? Um, I don't know, do they get, you know, sometimes nonsense from other kids in school? Has that, has your job impacted your family life? So the, the biggest way in which it has impacted us is, are, are the hours that I work. And 
how you know what impact that has in your on your presence at home mm. and that by some way is the biggest impact and this is uh, uh please don't uh, misunderstand what i'm saying here this is not a complaint about the hours that i work because mm-hmm. uh, i love what i do and i'm you know really lucky to do it and you only do it for a while in your journey through life but i do work you know um, mm-hmm. i work very hard every day mm-hmm. uh, and it you know has meant that since in particular i became a minister i'm never around at night and in the evening uh, because monday is the night before cabinet tuesday wednesday I'm in the doyle Thursday afternoon into early Thursday evening. There's normally normally cabinet subcommittee meetings, and then you have a, a commitment normally somewhere in the country, and then Friday are my constituency days, and that has, has certainly had a big impact then on other things that other parents can do. Mm. Do you carry some guilt because you're not there in the evening times? Uh, I don't actually, uh, because it is a conscious choice that I make and it's one I talk to my family about and uh, they have uh, supported me in the choice that I've made and I try to make up for it in other ways. So at the weekend I am fiendishly dedicated to trying to protect Mm. the majority of my weekend Uh, and um, uh, I suspect notorious for phone calls that I don't return until a Monday morning uh, and for my reluctance to do a huge amount at the weekend, because that is the time in which my looking after my own well-being and more to the point, being with the family, is where I have to play catch up, and I do. How do you look after your own well-being? Do you exercise? Is it, I don't know, something that you do in the evening times? I see, obviously listeners to this podcast can't see, but you have a lot of figurines here. Is that something that you get escapism out of? So uh, I have, uh, something I have become uh, even more conscious of in recent years, both as I get older uh, and also because there is wear and tear in politics, uh, as there is in any job. Uh, and But I guess the difference to it in politics is the wear and tear uh, and the kind of impact of attrition normally happens in the public eye. Uh, so it is something I've definitely uh, um, become more conscious of. So what do I do? I am a, a really big reader and I read every night for 20 to 30 minutes before I go to sleep. doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, I always have a bundle of books with me and that's my my time that looks after my own mind and soul before I go to sleep. We talked about the weekends and what I tri- tried to do there. Um, I'm Even though I didn't play sport, Kira, I'm mad into it at the weekend and following what is happening. Uh, I'm a, a, a demented Tottenham Hotspur fan. Mm. I'm a, a, a really big follower of my local GAA club, Nafina. And I go around to bowls when I can. That's a little tricky because it tends to be on a Friday night, but I still still go when I can. And then I also set myself a project every year, something that I try to do for myself in my own personal time. So this year I'm learning how to swim. So I've been getting swimming lessons every week uh, uh, since around April. And I'm working on my front crawl and working on my breathing. 
and uh, I am really devoted to that now. And I swam for my first time uh, in the sea. Now, I didn't swim too far and I was well in my depth. Uh, and uh, uh, that's been a really enjoyable thing for me to do now. So that's very interesting. So did you didn't swim or couldn't swim as a child? It goes back to what we were talking about earlier on. I mean, my, my asthma gave me a certain <laughs> kind of uh, uh, view about kind of sporting activity yeah. and physical activity. And I just couldn't really sustain anything for too long. Uh, and that's really the main reason I never did this, because I've never been, uh, I've always been very respectful of water, but I've never been kind of scared of us mm. in the way that I know some people can be. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then just for some reason this year, I said, God, I have to crack it. So I uh, jumped into the deep end of the pool for the first time there um, three or four weeks ago. And then, uh, as I said, once or sometimes even twice a week before I go into work, I go for, uh, for my swimming lesson. And I've got this fantastically patient and generous and kind uh, 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 friend who's instructing me in how to swim. He's kind of like an athletic Yoda and he's helping me do it. And I'm plugging away at that at the moment now. And I had a goal of trying to be able to do one length which I've now done, and I've now set myself another goal for Christmas of what I want to do. Do you feel it's been great for Headspace? I feel it has been great for Headspace, but you know what? It's physically tiring. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm. And I remember one morning I had to do a motion, a debate of no confidence uh, in the government, and I had to be one of the first government speakers to do it. And I'd booked my swimming lesson. And I thought, I, I, I'm going to stick with my swimming lesson because it was early anyway. It was seven in the morning or half seven. So I went and did my lesson, then got ready for the motion of no confidence and then spoke. And I tell you, halfway through that morning, I really felt the toll of that swimming lesson. And that's also, though, a nice thing because to feel that level of physical exertion and the tiredness after us. It's a great thing to be experiencing at my own point in life now, and it's great. And to experience the impact that breathing has on your ability to float. Mm. This has been a big insight for me to be getting at 48, and uh, I'm all the better for getting this. Very briefly, what was your project last year? My project for last year was actually a reading project. So last year, I set myself the goal of reading to reading and listening to Ulysses by Joyce. And I stuck at that for a year and did it. Mm. And then so that was a very different one to the one that I have for this year. And uh, equally rewarding, but equally difficult. You spoke there about wear and tear of, you know, the job. And earlier this year, you were at the centre of a political controversy um, over your failure to declare your election expenses. Yeah. It was very visible seeing you walk around Leinster House that this had really knocked you. Personally, how did it impact you? Yeah, it's look, it, it was a, a massive disappointment to myself that I let it happen. And uh, even though, uh, and, and I'm, I know that came across at the time, because uh, I'm, uh, I'm a stickler for trying to get all these things right. And thought I had everything right and then uh, trying to exactly pin down 
what happened a few years ago and the detail of everything was in really, really, really hard to do. And once I realised that I had got made this mistake, trying to get it exactly right and fix the problem and change the submission that I'd made to the Standards and Public Office Commission and then explain it, uh, uh, was just something I never thought would happen to me, but it did. And um, at the same time, I made the case for it then and I'll make the case for it now, uh, that there was a need also for to kind of recognise the proportionality of it and exactly what happened and the, you know, the nature of the mistake that I made. And I also made a case for that as well in the public debate around us. Did you have sleepless nights over it? Did it, you know, when you went home in the evening times, how you dealt with it at So home? I certainly had moments in which I slept a little less than I normally would. But, you know, coming in to days like that and then other moments of difficulty and you're tired before the day begins is a recipe for things getting really, really, really difficult. And I still managed to uh, get home, rest, take my mind off it and go at it again. Do you fear that it may have damaged you politically? Because a lot of people, and you know, you're aware of this yourself, that people would describe you that you're squeaky clean and that, you know, this was something that a lot of people might take very seriously. And another crowd would say that, you know, it was it was a mistake. It yeah. shouldn't have happened, um, but they wouldn't hold it against you. So my sense, so I've, I've never got as much contact from members of the public as I got during then apart from during COVID. Okay. Uh, so during COVID, um, particularly when I was in the middle of all these unbelievably difficult decisions about trying to support people's jobs and their income and support employers. At a time of social distance, I've never got so much contact in my life people phoning me and texting me and writing to me, emailing me. And so that Supporting is by so, uh, no, goes both ways. People who were so worried okay. during COVID okay. and they were contacting me because they knew I was making decisions mm -hmm. that would have an effect on mm -hmm. their lives and their business and, uh, you know, whether their job would still be around. Mm -hmm. So that by some way, Kira, is the the hardest and busiest time I've ever been at, I've ever went through, and also the time in which I got the most contact from the country. Uh, but the second time is, is during that, where I got a lot of contact from people who phoned me, members of the public, uh, not in my constituency, and a lot from within my constituency that were really supportive of me, uh, along the lines of, uh, Either you know a mistake was made, uh, or to encouraging me to get my way through it, and I take I took a lot of comfort and solace from that. That even when I was in the middle of dealing with all of that, uh, the um, uh, the contact I got from the public was very uh, reassuring. Now, of course, I know there'll also be people that may have had a particular view of me, and then this will confirm their view of us. Uh, but by and large, uh, I got a, a, a lot of uh, support and understanding from people who contacted me and who came up to me about it during that time. We spoke about, obviously, the loss of your mum. 
How important is faith to you? What are your religious beliefs? So when I was growing up and uh, up until early adulthood, uh, Catholicism, organised Christianity, was, was very important to me, actually, uh, and uh, formed reasonable part of my uh, inner life. Uh, was changed an awful lot of that, uh, where the uh, church um, uh, teachings in relation to uh, my gay friends and people in my life who I've got to know, uh, uh, who are both friends and who I've come across, who, when I'm with them and when I've been uh, present in their lives, are fundamentally equal to um, those who are not gay. Their love, their care, their attraction uh, for each other is intrinsically and powerfully equal to uh, uh, that which would exist between a man and a woman. And I had a fundamental and existential difficulty with the church teaching on this, because the idea that my uh, uh, anybody in my family, in my friends, in my community who would be gay, that they are in any way different to the care that they show uh, to somebody else in their lives who is gay, that that is different to what I receive, I just fundamentally rejected. Mm. And that had a profound effect on, on my engagement with organised religion, because I just knew to suggest that the love between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, is in any way different to other love in life, I knew to be wrong. Uh, so that had a real, real effect on my mass going, on my view of organised Christianity. But then there are many other concepts from that time that really have stuck with me and have a big effect in my life and stay with me to, to now. Such as? Such as, uh, so there are two uh, that... Two that formed a kind of background music to me, my soul, and then how I consciously think about things. The first one is, I think, the concept of grace, which is a core element of Christianity and Catholicism, I think is an enormously powerful concept. The idea that we are in some way severed from a benign and loving God due to our imperfection as humans, but we are still loved despite that imperfection and despite the severing, I find an enormously powerful concept because it really reminds me and, and demonstrates to me that the human condition and all our fragilities and our imperfections and all the things that we get wrong still coexists with the ability to love and the ability to be loved and to be respected. And then I also find the concepts of, of, of redemption, of forgiveness, um, so necessary 
and so fundamental to thinking about our lives. And they are still big parts of my ethical outlook. I would still describe myself as Christian. I would describe myself as somebody who still is a struggling Catholic. But those concepts have also been really affected by my life as a politician and what I've seen, and then also by church teachings that I hope over time will continue to evolve. When you say struggling Catholic, is that mainly down to the teachings of the church when it comes to LGBTQ+. That's a very big part of it for me, uh, because a, core, a, a big part of how I understood the Christian faith to be is the radical imperative of equality, that we're all equal. We all stand in front of each other equal, deserving of respect, deserving of care, and ultimately deserving of forgiveness as well. And I could not reconcile that then with the concept mm. that a, 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 my fellow human being that just has a different sexuality to me is in any way not deserving of that recognition of equality. Uh, and that was the, my the big tension. I just couldn't, I couldn't heal. Do you pray? Yes, I do, yeah. Every day or? No, uh, I don't pray every day, uh, but I pray uh, uh, not for long, but during, before the odd moment of challenge or test, or when I'm thinking about things that I, I should be really grateful for, I do. What is one thing that you would change about Ireland and why? So uh, I would, there's something I'd love to build upon in Ireland that I think we need to change and do better on, which is that I feel here in Ireland because of our awareness of the value of, of family, of parishes, of neighbourhoods, of communities, counties, all the way up to the, our sense of identity as being Irish citizens. There has always been a great care for your neighbour, care for somebody else, a recognition that we're all interdependent on each other, that you know, manifests itself on calling on a neighbour if you don't see them. Uh, I was in a library this morning before I came to do this, met members of the local women's shed movement in Capra and the Navan Road. And that's just another, the latest flowering of how we here in Ireland look out for each other and have an awareness of our connection to each other. That is not the case in many other parts of the world. And we should never take that for granted. And I can just see the forces of polarisation and rancour. I hope that maybe at some point might kind of challenge that and diminish that and, and, and sap it a little bit. And if there's one thing that I would like for us not to change, is that bit. And to be aware of it and kind of keep at it. Um, because during COVID, it uh, was the secret sauce of how we got through everything. And 
I think it is one of the qualities that makes this a very special part of the world to be in. And finally, a piece of advice you would give to my next guest or to somebody, a motto that you live by. Never give up, never give in. Minister Pascal Donoghue, thank you for joining me today. That's it for series one of the Cure Feeling podcast. Thank you for tuning in and a special thanks to all my guests and to my colleagues, Jim Coughlin, Tiernan King, Ivan Rodriguez and Sheila Riley for their work. Take care and chat soon.